This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, Venture Global's tax incentives for its LNG export terminal in Plaquemines Parish are eye-popping, and some historians and others see parallels with a 100-year-old sulfur mining company which built, then nearly destroyed, the town of Port Sulphur. And we'll hear about a rare and precious resource, new land that's growing up on the threatened coast of Louisiana. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, Lens contributor Sarah Sneath. Hey, Sarah. Hi. Environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus. Hi, Delaney. Hello. And managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hey, Katie. Hey, everybody. Sarah, we're going to start with your story first. I think to start is the story of how Port Sulphur began as a, a company town and what happened in that region when the sulphur mining company came to town, built it up, and what happened when they left. Can you just give us a little brief history of that whole process? Yeah. Port Sulphur, it started as a company town um, because of a company's interest in mining in a nearby area for sulfur. And so there wasn't at the time much housing in the area. So the company even built housing on their land that they purchased um, in order to get enough people to the area to, you know, do their operations. Um, And at one point, it was kind of a booming area. There was an actual hospital and there were, you know, resources for the workers in the area but when the mine ran out of sulfur and the company was looking for the next prospect they took down those houses that they had built um the hospital got downgraded you know to just basically an outpost um and you know pretty much the community um collapsed you know not physically well kind of physically the wetlands collapsed physically Mm. um but the town itself, you know, just disappeared. And so I think that it's an important lesson to think about. And it's one that's been learned, you know, by a lot of Louisiana communities um, at the front lines or fence lines of these industrial operations um, that hope to tie themselves to an industry that looks like it's growing because of potential for jobs or for development in the community. But something that occurs now that wasn't as much of an issue probably back then is that these industries can ask for the state for industrial tax exemptions, which means that a large portion of the resources that would go to the community through property taxes that would go to the school board and to the um, local parish council, and that would go to the police or sheriff's office Um, those don't go to those entities because they get such large property tax exemptions for um, up to 10 years sometimes, most of the time, up to 10 years um, under the old rules. Right. So the ITEP, we'll we'll get into that in just a bit. So then that land sat defunct and and unincorporated or uh, unpopulated but it also had these, as you as you suggested, it had these um, repercussions from the work that had been done by the Freeport Sulphur Company, the um, Freeport McMorrin. Now, several years pass, even decades, and enter Venture Global, and they come in and they're 
hoping to build a gas export terminal. Let's talk about what what it is that this um, factory is going to do, this colossal operation there. Yeah, so they would pipe in, or yeah, they will be piping in natural gas, um, which is, you know, fracked gas from areas like Haynesville, Shale on North Louisiana, and they take that gas and they condense it and cool it into a liquid that's like one six hundredth the size of uh, the natural gas, and then they put it into barges and they send that overseas. And this is a growing market right now because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Right. Um, as a result, you know, European countries have gotten off Russian gas. And so they're looking to replace that gas. Um, and a lot of these oil and gas corporations um, have quickly stood up to, they wanted to export gas. You know, there were, the U.S. began exporting natural gas not that long ago, um, just a few years ago. And now it's leading the world in exporting natural gas or liquefied natural gas. So um, they've really... Uh, jumped on this opportunity to provide Europe with more by natural gas. Okay. And when a company like Venture Global goes to the state regulators or whomever it is that they need to appeal to, to um, get all the permits for the construction of the plant and the exporting of this LNG product, they promise X number of jobs to the community and vitalization and whatnot go into what it is that they actually promote besides um, filling their coffers? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, so the facility at Venture Global, you know, that company, they're going to be applying to permits and they have applied for permits um, for this facility and been approved by the Federal Energy, Energy Regulatory Commission. So that's a federal body as well as um, to local state, you know, uh, authorities, like you mentioned, the Environmental Regulatory Authority in Louisiana, as well as they applied for a coastal use permit, but actually they got like a, um, this facility in particular, uh, uh, got to waive that, which is still a bit of a question why they hmm. didn't have to get a coastal use permit for this site um, from the Army Corps of Engineers. But so they did get this environmental quality permit though. Um, and that's more, like, more about emissions. And uh, so it's kind of like a permit to pollute a certain amount that um, is regulated by the state under the Clean Air Act. And um, they do kind of make in their application a point that, well, you know, while they're polluting, they are adding, you know, to the local economy. And with most of these environmental quality permit applications, they do have kind of like an economic report where they say, you know, how much they're going to contribute locally, um, and they break that down. But the question with Venture Global, um, and, and it could be a bigger question too, um, and I haven't necessarily done this with a lot of facilities, which is to compare the jobs numbers across all of those permitting applications, because mm. they, you know, um, are applying to, like I said, to the national regulatory authorities, as well as the state regulatory authorities, and then to, in this case, Louisiana Economic Development as well for their tax exemption. And so in each of those applications, they kind of said different numbers for their job numbers as far as construction jobs and for permanent jobs. 
Um, and then they were also broke down further what percentage of those jobs would go to locals. And that's a big thing to parse out as well, right? Because not only did they lower the number of jobs in some of these reports, they also said a large percentage of these jobs would not be local. Um, and that's in part because they built parts of this facility in Italy and um, shipped those components to Plaquemines Parish where they put them together, kind of like a giant Lego set. So it typically one of these big projects, you'd think that uh, one of the boons for the local employment numbers anyway, would be the construction itself, you know, bringing in lots and lots and lots of construction workers to put this giant facility up. But the way they've done it, which is seems to be it's a new thing that that um, is happening in Louisiana, that they're doing these Lego sets, as you as you suggest, that they're coming from overseas and they just need to be I mean, I'm sure it's a little bit more complicated than that, but there's not a ton of construction that's happening as was normally the case, as was typically the case in the past. There's also some suggestions that you had in the story about those facilities um, that some of the people you talked to suggest that they may not be as safe or sound than um, the the old-fashioned mode of construction. Yeah, it's Venture Global themselves have have kind of um, mentioned this. So Venture Global has built another facility in, um, I think it's Cameron Parish, uh, that they have had, the name of it is Kalkashu Pass, and it's been having issue after issue with um, elevated emissions levels, Mm. um, pollution levels, basically. Um, And the reason they, the Venture Global, the company itself, has said that part of the reason is because they had their facility designed and built, parts of their facility designed and built overseas in Italy, and um, specifically parts of their power. They have like on-source power. They have their own uh, power generation on site. And uh, they wanted the, the Plaquemines Parish facility is built in the same, it's gonna be built in the same, the design is the same as the Calcasieu Pass facility. So they're not changing anything in their design, you know? So the idea that this facility would have you know, higher levels of pollution comes from the fact that this same exact company built the same kind of facility somewhere else in Louisiana, and that facility is showing emissions. And the company is pointing to the fact that they built this new parts of the facility overseas as part of the reason why they're having such high pollution levels. And going back to the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, this is a story, you know, I did previously for the lens. Um, they have like this issue where they are polluting higher, but they also are using it to drag their feet on having to commit to these long-term gas contracts that they've uh, committed to with like Shell and BP, and they haven't been selling, you know, their gas to these long-term contracts. And so they've been able to sell natural gas in the spot market. And so that has allowed them to sell at higher prices. They're actually making more money being in this weird state where they're not fully operating commercially um, and they're having all these issues. They're like kind of profiting from their own uh, somewhat broken polluting facility. Right. Let's talk about the the ITEP, the Industrial Tax Exemption Program, which one would think exists to encourage development, which will then create jobs for Louisianans, right? Can you talk about the amount of ITEP 
breaks that this company got and the in the introduction I said it's eye popping. I want you to just sort of walk us through these numbers because they're they're pretty startling. Yeah, I think it was 800 million that they're getting and that's just an industrial tax exemption breaks. They're also getting payroll tax breaks on top of that. So they're, you know, they're getting a lot of money. Uh, they're avoiding a lot of property tax, local property taxes. Um, and they, then the, I think the interesting thing is too, is that they, um, even though they hadn't started construction on the facility, I think like five years before they started construction on the facility, they submitted a kind of like a, a notice that they're going to submit an application at some point. Um, and they did it under the deadline of the rules changing on, under um, Governor John Bell Edwards that have made the program a lot, well, somewhat more stringent. Um, so now uh, under the new rules, instead of getting 100% property tax reduction, local property tax reduction, they're getting uh, 80, they could get, they would get if they were under the new rules, 80%. Um, and there would be a local vote on their property tax uh, exemptions. And so that's a big thing, too, because under these new rules, there have been plenty of local parishes that have denied companies um, these tax exemptions and have held them you know, to stricter rules regarding the jobs. Because uh, part of the reason why this program was changed by Governor Edwards was because of the locals saying that you know, they're having no say on their own property uh, taxes. And also that there's no follow through when the company says it's going to create a certain number of jobs. And so, again, that kind of goes back to like the company saying in different applications, it's going to, you know, create a different number of jobs. Right. Um, it seems like there's no real stricter hold to whatever number they do say. And they were they were they slid under the wire and were grandfathered in to these um, more relaxed rules in order to to. Right to save this money. Did they at that time, do you know if their, if their application considered that they were going to be using, for lack of the better term, we're going to just go with the Lego building process. Was that part of the application? Do you know, had they contemplated using that streamlined way to build it? Well, um, when they were giving their notice, I don't think they had to really give any sort of details okay. like that. Um, in fact, they didn't have to give any sort of details like that, you know, more recently when the application was actually approved. Um, hmm. So, you know, that's kind of part of why, again, the local authorities don't like the state, you know, being the one to say yes or no, because the state has done this, you know, did, did in the past. Um, this thing where they would just have, you know, a list of like, you know, dozens of these facilities asking for industrial tax exemptions, and they would just say yes to all of them, like all 20 at once, you know, right. And um, in the meeting where this uh, facility was approved, the same thing happened, you know, there was all these uh, companies asking for these exemptions, you know, in advance, and um, they got the yes without any real discussion on the matter. Yeah. Is yeah. this similar to some of the other facilities we talk about when we do um, this podcast? We talk about the polluters up and down the river in Louisiana. And when you said that they had to apply for permits to um, the various in agencies, does that also, as is typically the case, 
this it's self-reported that they have to keep themselves to a certain level of whatever particulate matter or whatever is going into the river, but they get to say what's happening. Is that true for this plant too? Yeah, that's true. That's very true. And there have been, you know, there have been efforts at the state level to try to um, implement some sort of fence line monitoring. Um, and, you know, that just has never gone through, you know, the state says it doesn't have you know enough money for that. And, you know, the legislators, you know, I think are uh, lobbied to not support those kinds of measures. It's counterintuitive, one little thing. People who are in Plaquemines have seen all the traffic jams of all the workers and all that stuff happening. And so I thought your explanation of that was really helpful to understand about it's the fact that they're using the Legos, as we're calling it now, to that makes them work at breakneck speed, sort of. Or how would you describe, like, what... I think the congestion stuff, if you know Plaquemines, you know there's congestion there, so it's helpful to understand why that would be if they're not hiring as many workers. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. So part of the problem with hiring so many people from outside the parish um, or from outside that town uh is that yeah there's congestion there's a lot of traffic congestion and this is an area that um is really hard to get to actually there's only like one way in and one way out um and so if you drive in the area it's very easy to see you know why it would be a problem to bring in such high traffic and yeah in october uh venture global uh, applied to for the federal energy and regulatory commission to increase the amount of you know, increase the construction schedule. And I think you're right, Katie, that part of the reason why they are able to quicken their construction schedules because they're having large components built overseas. So then they get enough, they can have enough workers on uh, the site to quickly put those pieces together. Um, and it is part of, you know, why companies want to use, um, we're saying Legos, but they call it modular construction. So they build these modules overseas and they, put them together here. Um, and there's the issue of traffic, which is probably the thing that most people in Plaquemines Parish are annoyed by. Um, obviously, it's more than annoyance because, you know, it not only is the issue of taking longer commute times, but it more traffic means more likelihood for traffic accidents and fatalities. Um, it also means that if there's an accident at the facility, you know, something uh, bad were to happen at that facility, which is dealing with, you know, hazardous chemicals, that would be very difficult for people to leave um, quickly. So right. it'd be very quickly hard for people to evacuate, basically. Right. We've been talking all summer and fall. We were talking about the saltwater wedge, which was slowly moving up from the Gulf into the Mississippi and endangering the communities that live along that river as that water became more and more closer to them and impacted perhaps their drinking water. How much water does this operation use? We were told by some locals that um, that they saw folks just going up to fire hydrants and taking water out of the fire hydrants to oh. supply this facility with water too. And that, you know, potable water was being used for construction at the facility. And the facilities, the company's own environmental permit says that I think they're allowed to use 100,000 gallons a day, that would be out of their own tap, right? So if they're taking something out of a fire hydrant um, in the city, they're not, you know, they're not paying for that. Um, and also there was the issue of like, now they're making water harder to 
you know, get for the locals, you know, residents who, right. uh, you know, lived there before the facility. Um, and then I think it was interesting to see that, I think, in a comment from Louisiana Bucket Brigade and some other environmental groups, they mentioned that pulling water from the tap when it had a high salt level in it was also probably not good for the company's own construction because having concrete made with salty water oh. could um, endanger, you know, folks too, because it could make it not as stable, the, the concrete not as stable. Right. You write about it really poetically in the story. I appreciate your time, Sarah. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Our guests this week are Lens contributor Sarah Sneath, environmental reporter Delaney Dreyfus, and managing editor Katie Rechtal. Hi, I'm Marta Jusen, education reporter at The Lens. The Lens has been a vital part of the news landscape, not just here in New Orleans, but nationally as a model for what we do, what we don't do, and perhaps most importantly, what we value. As news organizations shrink and become more and more polarized and entrenched in their camps, we know how important it is to provide ethical, honest, and professional journalism to help you make sense of the news. Please help us continue to provide you with the news that matters to you. Make an online donation today at thelensnola.org. Thank you. All right, Delaney, from loss of land to happy new land being created, you've got a story about this growing coast that we have. Tell us about Wax Lake and Achafalaya River Deltas. Definitely. So I had the pleasure of visiting the Wax Lake Outlet, which is an offshoot of the Achafalaya River. And it was not created naturally, but is now growing naturally, growing unintendedly. So the Wax Lake Outlet was created as a drainage system. Um, It was dug by the Army Corps of Engineers in 1942 to prevent the Achafalaya from flooding Morgan City. Um, And since then, uh, lots of sediment has been going down both the Achafalaya and the Wax Lake outlet and growing these deltas at the the at the where they at the point where the rivers meet the Gulf of Mexico. And it's a beautiful place where there is actually land growing as opposed to land subsiding and the ocean rising and the rest of the Louisiana coast where we are losing land. Mm, right. You detail in your story the the historic path of what would have been the Mississippi where it was heading west and then the Army Corps of Engineers in order to preserve all the um, communities and the the industry really that was that had taken shape and that was going to be really vital to the growing population of the United States just give a little history of how the Mississippi Mm -hmm. River was going to go and what it does do now instead. Yeah, so over time, over the the 7,000 years that the Mississippi River built much of Louisiana, it really meandered to the west and to the east, um, and it settled on this outlet that we know now um, that goes through Plaquemines Parish and New Orleans. It creates this 
path from Baton Rouge to New Orleans that is loaded with industry um, and the shape that we're all familiar with of the Mississippi River. And that was kept in place by the Army Corps of Engineers, by levee building um, to preserve the industry and to preserve the cities as they were built around the river. Mm. Um, The Atchafalaya was starting to take back more of the flow of the river. And if we had not engineered the river so that it would stay in its um, previous arrangement, that would have become the master stream. That would have been become the faster route to the, to the Gulf of Mexico for all of that water and all of that sediment. Hmm. So in 1963, (laughs) the army Corps finished um, building the old river control Um, station. It's a dam and lock system that controls exactly how much water from the Mississippi is going into the Atchafalaya so that it didn't take over. And that is separated with, you know, 70% of the water continuing on to New Orleans and only 30% flowing through the Atchafalaya and the Wax Lake outlet. Okay. And as a result now, we're, we're getting these deltas that are in all this disappearing coast, we are we're growing new coast in this region. What's it like? Tell us what it's like to be down there. Really beautiful to mm. be down there. Um, you know, when I take a boat out on the Wax Lake outlet, you know, you see um, the opening, the the channel that was dug by the Army Corps, but then you start to see all of this new land that's building up, um, and it's all in very different stages. Some of it you can't even tell that it's new land because it's already really kind of an established island that has these beautiful willow trees, uh, black willow trees growing. And the black willow trees, their root system is is keeping the land together and making sure that it withstands weather disturbances that come through. And so it's just a really thriving, really alive ecosystem. Um, and then there are Parts that you can tell are in earlier stages of growing, parts that are just the the sandy, the muck, the sediment that has been settling. Um, and you can really start to see how the sediment built up underwater and eventually um, came above the water's surface and built these islands. Um, and it, it, this has been a celebration this year, really, of the 50 years of this delta growing. There was a very big historic flood in 1973 that brought a lot of sediment to this area and the sediment had been growing underwater for some time and when the floodwaters receded all of this new land started to poke up above the surface and over the last 50 years a variety of uh, plants and now trees have kept the land together to build these very beautiful deltas. Is it fished at all or is there any sort of protections associated with it right now to keep it from yes there are protections um there's a wildlife management area so there i I do think there there definitely are people who can fish and and hunt in that region we actually visited one of the um hunting camps that is used during the correct season there are seasons Mm -hmm. so it is all monitored by the Department of Natural Resources. Okay. Did you step out onto it? I did, yeah. Came home with so much sediment on my <laughs> shoes. 
it's really mucky, really sticky kind of clay, um, clay and dirt and mud, and but it's beautiful. Tell us about what Edwards has done. Yes, so last year, Governor John Bell Edwards nominated a portion of the Atchafalaya Basin to become the state's first national estuarine research reserve, um, which would further support scientific research happening in these two actively growing deltas. It would really protect these two estuaries and make sure that scientists are able to study these rare deltas that are growing within our country, um, in a country that is facing so much land loss, land subsidence, land, and rising sea levels. How do these um, new sort of tender areas survive hurricanes? Yeah, they are building up over time. So when the land, uh, when the clay comes above the surface of the water, the first plants that are going to um, start to live there are, are these floating marsh plants. They aren't necessarily connected to um, the land below, but over time, their roots will trap more and more sediment underwater, and eventually plants will move in that do attach to the peat at the bottom of the river. Uh, Cajuns call this La Prairie Tremblant, the trembling prairie. Did I pronounce that correctly (laughs) at all? No. (laughs) That's nice. (laughs) Um, this, this floating marsh area, like really starts to thicken until it can trap enough sediment to build up land. So some of those early plants are, are cord grass, sea oats, um, baccarat shrubs, swamp mallow flowers, and their roots are keeping that soil in place until more land can build up for trees to actually germinate and grow. And one of the first trees in this area that will take hold is a black willow. It's a native North American tree. And there are still enough of them in coastal Louisiana that they do spread naturally. Their population has been decimated by by logging and by saltwater intrusion, but there are still enough that they are coming back in where these deltas are growing. They're coming back naturally. And it's being called a living laboratory? Yes, yes, so some scientists and advocates have started referring to this region as a living laboratory um, because it allows scientists to get a, a look at what a real growing um, young delta that's just forming looks like. Um, and the state is covered in so much, so many deltas that are are decaying, and we want to bring in projects that will rebuild those deltas and we have to know what to look for. For example, there's the Mid-Barataria Sediment Diversion Project in Plaquemines Parish, and that has used some of this knowledge that has been garnered from studying the Wax Lake Delta and the Atchafalaya Delta to learn what the deltas should look like when they're growing, when they're healthy, when they're thriving. And that's what we want to recreate in Plaquemines Parish. It's just so great to have some good news. Thanks, Delaney. Thanks, Sarah. Bye. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, 
Lens contributor, Sarah Sneath, Environmental reporter, Delaney Dreyfus, and managing editor, Katie Rechtdahl. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>